0: This is, uh, you know, that negative thought you've been having, and uh, I just uh, I just can't let you try and change yourself without a fight, so uh, go ahead and just turn this show off, okay, and um, uh, yeah, everything's still fine. This is Blindsight with your host, Bill Lundgren, an AINC original podcast. Seriously? We're not holding back truth. We're here to help you heal and become the best you possible. Here's the chair. Here's the pillow. Here's Bill. Hi there. Welcome to Blind Sight, the podcast from Audio Information Network of Colorado, which is your feature on the subject of mental health and uh, people with blindness. We're happy to have you on board today, and I'm really particularly happy to have introduced my guest for today's session, But before I do that, I just want to remind those of you in the uh, Denver, Boulder area, there's a fundraising concert coming up with Diane Shore, uh, a a wonderful, wonderful singer and performer, uh, which will be a fundraiser for uh, Audio Information Network of Colorado. It will be Thursday, March 4th. Uh, Doors open at 5 o'clock. Uh, though I advise you to get your tickets now through uh, uh, the uh, AIN of Colorado uh, website. And will be a great night called In Darkness because uh, the guests will all be blindfolded and the, and the performers are all blind. So it should be a fun evening, and keep that in mind. We'll be down at, at 2102 a- Arapahoe avenue in denver and at the masterpiece theater so anyway on to our program i am delighted to present you uh dr kathy cutlet uh who is a uh been a history professor at uh, uc davis and most recently just retired as the director of the paul lawnmower uh Institute on Disabilities, uh, and has been a distinguished lecturer uh, both here in this country and in Europe on the issue of disabilities, and also has written a number of uh, books on uh, people that we normally wouldn't know about who have been blind, and, you know, in some of their actions have made a difference in the world. So, Kathy, welcome to Blind Sight.
1: Thank you. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Well, I'm excited to have you. And I wanted to, as I often do, ask you a personal question. Why, what made you decide to be, get involved in history as a career, and particularly the type of history that you focused on, uh, which has to do with uh, blindness and di- disability? You know, a lot of stereotypes around people who are uh, professionals in the field of history as being kind of dodgy and, uh, you know, wearing uh, sensible shoes and and, uh, kind of like dull to be with. And I know you're not that, but (laughs) what made you get into it?
1: Um, well, let's see. The, the history part is um, a fairly easy answer. I um, was doing uh, my junior year abroad in France and went to history lecture there for a class that I was having um, as part of my program and really fell in love with French history there. And i have been excited in by history before that because of teachers. So I had a wonderful professor um, when I was an mm. undergraduate at UC Santa Cruz. And I just got really, really motivated. I just wanted to know more. Um, I never considered myself a history nerd, um, but I loved stories and storytelling. And I loved hearing how people talked about things that I didn't know about in the past. And so it became became this way for me to burrow into worlds that I didn't know existed. So that was really exciting.
0: Um, That's for, interesting. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So for the blind history piece, that took longer to mature and develop. Um, and that requires me to kind of pull back a little bit and talk about my own history. Uh, I was born with cataracts um, at a time when they couldn't do much about cataracts. And so I, I, didn't see anything till I was about nine months old when my dad took a picture with a camera and I reacted to the flash. And so they rushed me around to various doctors and they performed a number of surgeries over the course of my life that made my sight better um, and made me me have sight actually, then made it better, but it was never that great. So I was always in this in-between place. I was never not seeing anything, but I was always seeing uh badly. <laughs> and so uh I've avoided blind people. I was terrified of them. That was the path I didn't go on. That was the scary, you know, place that that other people went and I was rescued from that. And so I just pushed back on that that narrative a lot and didn't want to be associated or with it at all. Uh, I went through my entire graduate school career in basic denial um, you know kind of even though my vision wasn't great I used magnifiers I uh, tried every trick in the book to to get get things done but not having to read as much and uh, you know not having to ask for help all of those things and then I got a teaching job um, at uh, Barnard College and long story short they asked me how I would teach a class to, uh, students, a large lecture class, how I would teach that students if I had a vision impairment. So me who's in denial and it's like, Oh, I have a vision impairment. Right. Um, it didn't occur to me that people would hold that against me. Um, even though I was holding it against myself half the time, um, I allowed, um, these people to, uh, kind of, you know, stomp all over me and I got really angry. I just, you know, I was, furious. And I said, I am not going to, um, uh, to, to, you know, be a, a victim here. And they'd asked me if I would, the Barnard faculty asked me if I would give a lecture to a large class to show them how I would do it. And I'd never lectured to a large class before. Uh, no cited person had ever lectured to a large class before. And, Nobody that was cited uh, was asked to do that, and so I was I was angry. And essentially, it was a wake up moment for me. And I said, well, you know, something. If I'm going to be um, condemned for, uh, you know, having no vision or not not being capable, I'm going to go the other direction, and I'm going to prove to people that this is not what blindness is. Anyway, so. I um, ended up saying, I'm going to study blind people. I want to understand what their history was, because I was doing history of medicine already. Uh, I've been really interested in the history of epidemics. This was way, 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 way pre-COVID, but I was really interested in that. And I thought, oh, it's a nice little bridge over to um, uh, history of medicine from history of medicine to history of blind people, disabled people, all of that. Very long answer, but it gives you a lot to work with. Hopefully.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I, I imagine when you started, you must have thought, like a lot of people do, there isn't much history there. It's like <laughs> yeah. it's almost like we've discovered blindness recently.
1: Yes. No. That's that's a really excellent point because yeah, most people just sort of say, oh, eh, first of all, blind people. How many are there? Second of all, um, they're not very articulate. That's the belief They They didn't have any positions of power. They didn't have any information. They were either victims or, you know, just kind of marginal to everything. And the trick for me was to understand that you need to think about blind people within the context of all kinds of other things happening historically. And not just related to blindness, so it could be related to gender, it could be related to race, it could be related to um, the growth of cities, it could be related to how um, education was formed. All of those things, blind people are right there and they're making noise, they're changing things, they're doing stuff, but nobody thought to look except for in a few cases at a few maybe exceptional blind people that had either invented something or become uh, famous musicians or a couple of scientists, but they were very rare, and it didn't apply to most people. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Most people didn't think that. Sure most people, um, Siri's telling me, I'm not sure I understand. So, Siri, just listen up. Um, so, anyway, I, you know, I... Uh, started to dig in a little bit and I had skills from my other kind of historical research from writing my doctorate and then my first book, which was about cholera epidemics. So I knew where to look for people that you weren't used to finding. Um, I met people in France who were doing some of this work and I uh, bonded with them. Um, There was a colleague that I ended up writing a book with in France who Uh, was really deep in with the history of blind people in France. And that just blew my mind. I just learned so much. And it was so exciting, uh, both to learn about it and also to work with her to write a book together. Um, And I can talk about that book if you want. It's the history of this really cool.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, so what happened was I was in the archives looking for, you know, just evidence, blind people. And I came across this little pamphlet and it was on the history, it was said, it was said, um, reflections on the physical and moral condition of the blind. Um, and it gave this woman's name, her name was Adele Husson, H-U-S-S is in Sam O-N. And so I was like, wow, what is this? And, um, I was, the archivist was helping me, um, read the, the handwriting and all of that. And so I was transcribing it. And then, um, uh, my friend, uh, that I'd talked to about blind history, whose name is Zina Z I N A. And the last name is W-E-Y-G-A-N-D. W E Y G A N D. Um, I started talking to her about it. And we had this conversation. She said, you know, I found that same pamphlet and I didn't quite know what to do with it. It's just, She's clearly this really interesting woman. It was from 1820. Uh, well, that, that's more or less 1822 around then. Um, so really early in uh, history of blind people for most people. Um, and she'd written this, this little pamphlet about how blind people should behave and how they, especially girls, um, and nobody had written about blind girls very much at all. And she was giving advice to her, uh, what she called her uh, comrades of misfortune. Um, and so her kind of fellow travelers, which I love the term comrades of misfortune. I just think we should appropriate that and really run with it and make it our own and uh, all of that. But she, uh, Adele, uh, wrote about, you know, what kind, how to tell the difference between fabrics, um, what it means to listen to music, uh, what, how she imagines what stars are. Uh, All of these kind of reflections that she had. And then she has this whole part at the end, uh, the second half of the book, is all about blind women's marriage prospects. And so she just digs in and starts thinking about how blind uh, women should not get married because... If they marry a sighted guy, he's going to just take advantage of her and he's not going to be interested in anyway. If she marries a blind guy, she's Adele says, um then the the she will become um you know really desperate because he won't have any prospects, she won't have any prospects all of this. And again, this is 1820 and and all of this. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, uh, however, we, long story short, we ended up digging in to try to figure out who this Adele Hussan was. Uh, we found out we've had a chance uh, encounter, uh, uh, you know, with a document that made the connection for us. It turned out she did get married. She did get married to a blind guy. She went on to publish about uh, 12 novels before she died at the age of 29 in a fire. Um, and she, Wow and the, the yeah. novels are all terrible, but she, they sold pretty well. She was writing to this sort of moral, moralistic audience of the 1820s in France. So she's trying to ingratiate herself with the religious officials at the time and trying to do all that, um, for your so audience. Like the members, conservatives. Yes, exactly. Uh, and, uh, for your, for the audience, for people that do want to read this book, um, you can. It's it should be on Bookshare, um, uh, Bookshare.org. It's also available. Uh, yeah, that's probably your best bet, Bookshare. It's it came out a long time ago. It came out in two thousand two, so it's been out a while. Um, um, but it's really a great read. You get her thoughts, Adele's, and then how we piece together the detective story of finding who she was and what her true life was like.
0: Well, the the question I had was, did she actually, is, was she talking from experience about her negativity of being married to a blind guy?
1: Um. So, no, I don't think so. I mean, we don't know details about her life. She married a blind musician, oh, really? um, inventor. And what's interesting, um, the other piece of this is that she, in her writing, says, Blind men should get married, just not blind women. Because if blind men marry a sighted woman, they'll take care of her, him. <laughs> um, and so that that would be the great thing. But if he marries a blind woman, he's, it's just not going to be that great. So uh, her husband, uh, Adele and her, they we believe they had one and perhaps two oh, really? children. Uh, we believe that Adele and the children perished in the uh. fire. Um But the husband survived uh, the fire and went on to marry a sighted woman who took care of him. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, so I guess she kind of uh, maybe knew what she was talking about. I don't know. But um, I don't know any details about their relationship. You know, people didn't
0: talk about that kind
1: of stuff in the early Mm -hmm. 19th century. So we don't know.
0: I'm sure they don't really even acknowledge that someone happened to be blind. Or just hide them away, right,
1: mm-hmm. well, well, see the thing was they were trying to get a res- one of the things was and one of the reasons she wrote this this piece was she was trying to get a residency uh to get a a place to live in a enclave for blind people that allowed. Uh, blind people to live in, and supported them and gave them meals and some charity, and they were very, very, very poor. Um, and so she was trying to make money from her writing, right. that mm-hmm. you know could mm-hmm. only go so far. And they didn't, they didn't um, <clears throat> let her in because somebody said, and we have the petition that says this. She wrote her petition to try to get admitted there, and somebody had scrawled in the margin, "This woman is a schemer. Don't let her in." And so uh, it was interesting. Yeah. So they wouldn't have let her live there. They wouldn't have let them live there as a blind married couple, I don't think. So, um, you know, it's one of those. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. Anyway.
0: Well, tell me more, because you've done a lot of research in this area. And uh, it's fascinating to hear these kinds of stories from 1820. Now, Louis Braille was when?
1: he was about the same time and it's it's likely that they they met we we figured out that he definitely knew her husband her husband and he definitely interacted because they both did stuff at the Really? Okay. So we're talking school.
0: You're talking about uh certainly he was a major figure in the blindness movement
1: no no, no, he wasn 't that 's the thing louis braille really? wasn 't a major figure among blind people except for like the ten or so that he interacted with at the at the Institute of uh, Blind Institute of Blind Youth in Paris, and so he was busy you know kind of perfecting his system, working with people, whatever nobody'd heard of louis braille he had you know he was very modest very low key. Uh, the invention of Braille was a very uh kind of probably more collaborative than the stories typically tell it that, oh. you know, he probably tried it and gave it to his fellow students and they corrected and made, you know, suggestions and, and all of that. And so Louis Braille was not, you know, this, this big, you know, chest something, you know, like here I am, I'm here to save us. You know, he was, just kind of quietly saying, you know, we need a way to read that's more practical than, you know, just raise and print letters. And there's, you know, stories about how he worked um, to improve the system based on hearing a lecture by a blind, or sorry, by a a general, one of Napoleon's generals about uh, tactile writing, and that gave louis braille the idea wow maybe there's something more we could do with this and
0: people had come up
1: with yeah people had come up with all kinds of systems for blind people to write and some of them were very informal and just you know it's in a single household somebody worked with somebody to do something or in um, a particular uh, region maybe people learned a few things but they didn't you know, have Braille until it spread more in the 18, I would say, 1870s, 1880s, and Louis Braille died in 1852. So he wasn't, he wasn't there spreading his system. It's just that it was taking root among people that were in a position to show it to others. And, you know, it kind of snowballed after that.
0: So he never got to be appreciated in his lifetime for what he did.
1: I think people know that he wasn't. I mean, he was appreciated as a teacher at the school and somebody that had a really good idea. And I think there were people that saw the potential there. But I don't think anybody mm. dreamed that it would, you know, be a worldwide communication system, Mm -hmm. you know, or Mm -hmm. transcription system, I should say. Uh, You know, nobody knew that then. It was just more, you know, one of these many things, including general literacy in European history and in French history in particular, where students that were cited were learning to read and write for the first time, many of them, Um, up until the end of the you know, around 1900, most sighted people were not that literate. They didn't know how to read and write. That would be, uh, you know, that was that was taking root and, and taking off, but it would take time. And so blind people were going through a similar process. It's not mm. that different where this, they were catching up to the sighted people. It wasn't that at all. It was part of a big movement in the world and in European and especially French society to make sure that everybody was educated Mm. so that they could become good workers, good citizens. They could, uh, you know, be good little French citizens, basically. Mm.
0: Well, so was France kind of like a a bedrock to the blindness community in terms of what was happening or... With this happening independently
1: it was but it was because it was the place that formed an institution to educate blind people up until this this um institute of blind youth was formed uh in the eight. it was right before the french revolution basically it was formed in the 1780s but and it was formed by a sighted guy Um, named Valentin Hui, H-A-U-Y. Um, and he wanted to bring blind people together to educate them. And this was the time of the enlightenment. So he was, uh, uh, a big, uh, champion of education for everybody and he wanted blind people to be educated too so he's he formed this school he brought together blind people from france uh, or people in the paris region he uh you know started publicizing it and the school eventually took off uh in france and what happened was that leaders or you know uh, cited people in other countries, especially the United States Germany Russia uh, saw what was happening in France and saw it as a model. so they copied it they came and visited and of course, if there was no internet or you know any kind of Uh, Massive communication So people traveled and they'd do the little circuit They'd go to the school And they'd watch students read They'd watch students perform And then they'd take the ideas back to their own schools And um, share it with blind people there So uh, it was very Kind of informal And uh, slow It was slow to take off, I think Um, But it was... It, you know, laid the groundwork.
0: How did it transfer over to the United States in that same time when everybody else was looking at France, kind of originating in France and then uh, Americans discovering it? Is that how the
1: right? So, so yeah, France was considered kind of the the like cool place in the nineteenth century in the you know the eighteen hundreds. Everybody wanted a piece of France. They went there for medical school. They went there for uh, finding out what was cool in terms of art and and writing Mm -hmm. and all of that. So France was the thing. And uh, one of the people that thought France was pretty interesting was Samuel Gridley Howe, H-O-W-E, who toured. He was in Europe a lot, and he came and he visited the school and was influenced by it. And came back to the United States and formed the Perkins School for the Blind in Boston. That was the first American institution uh, for blind people. Uh, And so word spread uh, around the country about educating blind people. And so people would either send their kids there. uh, They would read about it in newspapers. Uh, Charles Dickens was great at publicizing it. Um, And the thing that was interesting is when people toured you know, went on when there were tourists in the 19th century. One of the things they did was go to these institutions and visit them. They would go and see, like, oh wow, let's go see the blind people. Let's go see the what they're learning, and, and isn't that cool? And they'd write about it, and they'd write letters home, or they'd write articles in the newspaper, all of that. And Charles Dickens, um, the the novelist, was one of the people that toured Perkins and thought, wow, this is pretty darn cool. Um, And he wrote about it. He met uh, Laura Bridgman, uh, who was a student there, B-R-I-D-G-M-A-N. And she was the first blind deaf person to be educated, uh, you know, in a public way uh, at Perkins. Uh, Samuel Gridley Howe made her his kind of project. And um, she became kind of this poster child for Perkins until... Helen Keller came along and Helen Keller's mom had read Charles Dickens account of this education of Laura Bridgman. And so she thought, cool, I'm going to get Laura, um, the people that educated Laura to educate my daughter. Um, if, if Perkins must be on to something, if they can educate this deafblind Laura Bridgman, they can ed- educate my ble- deafblind uh, Helen Keller, too. And so they did. Um, Helen Keller. First teacher, uh, Ann Sullivan, who everybody's heard of, who came to, uh, who came from Perkins and she traveled to the South. Uh, Helen Keller was from Alabama and she went, uh, to Alabama and educated, uh, Helen Keller, uh, in, at home. <laughs> I guess it's one of the early cases of homeschooling. I'm not sure, but anyway, uh, so, uh, Helen Keller became sort of the poster child for Perkins then, and that showed a lot of other blind people that, like, yeah. wow, mm-hmm. this, this can really happen.
0: Well, has France remained a kind of a leader in the blindness, or have they sort of rested on their laurels? I mean, are you, uh, you've you been to, uh, you've lectured in, in Paris, Uh, Numerous times And what have you seen there As compared to what we have in this country
1: You know, it's very retro now Um, The United States, I think Took the lead more um, And the other thing that happened For blind people was mainstreaming And so in the United States uh, That was especially popular And so rather than put blind people In their own institutions um, it became more and more uh, common to have them educated along with sighted people in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s as less less of a form of isolation. So uh, the, the blind people in the 1960s were not likely to have been in an institution as much. Um, mm-hmm. The United States, I think, where it excelled in ways that France didn't was there was a movement from within blind people themselves to promote, <clears throat> you know, a blind identity and a blind blind education, all of those things. And things like National Federation for the Blind, or sorry, National Federation of the Blind, and I, I don't usually make that mistake, um, the American Council uh, of the Blind, uh, these organizations Uh, Run by and for blind people really bubbled up from within the unique cultural uh, uh, world of the United States. Um, In some of it's rooted in racial politics, some of it's rooted in civil rights and um, uh, working class history, all of that. It's all kind of part of the American. Uh, dream in a way to to push back and to educate the common person. Whereas in France, it remained you know the benevolent sighted people doing something for those poor blind people, and it never it never got out of that. And even the the blindness organizations uh, that formed in France, they either copied the American organizations, and it didn't go well. Or they just thought, you know, we don't need this. We don't, uh, you know, let's just be individuals. We don't need to join groups anyway. And so the the whole politics of it in France was very different, very um, paternalistic. And that's that always gives me the heebie-jeebies when I go over to France. I love France. I'm a French historian through and through. I'm married to a French woman. I'm all of these things. But I cannot stand the paternalism. It just drives me nuts.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, which may uh, be true in a, a lot of concerns about people with disabilities in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of paternalism. Yep. Uh I remember. I remember in me- when I've gone down to Mexico. It's like uh, the the little old ladies in and Black mantillas who would. Uh, Across themselves when they oh, see yeah. me, you know. Yeah, that like, happened to me uh, in France. To prevent the yep. evil yep. eye. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And it's like, oh, <laughs> you know, I've got the evil eye. But it, it's, uh, we're fortunate in this country. But What do you, I mean, if you, Hal was really the one who got it all started in, in the United States because we don't talk much about him. We talk about <laughs> Perkin, but not in him personally. In having that kind of foresight to, you know, kind of work and get out of that paternalistic uh, model.
1: Well, it's more complicated. I think how first of all, how himself was complicated. He was, I think, he used people, um, and especially people like Laura Bridgman. He didn't do this for altruism to help you know propel blind people into a state of independence. He wanted blind people to be educated, but he was also a fundraiser, a showman, uh, you know, all of those mm-hmm. things. So, <laughs> you know, he he needed blind people as much as they needed him. And um, you know, it's very very clear that until the movements from within the the, the within blind people themselves came to be Uh, part of American society, I think American society had a similar sense of paternalism and all of that uh, compared to the, um, you know, uh, it was like France in a lot of ways. The thing that changed the United States, I think, was civil rights, uh, self-determination, independence that was kind of uh, rooted in an idea that America... Americans need to pick themselves up by the bootstraps. Now there's advantages and disadvantages of that ideology because, I mean, you know, in France your average blind person is better taken care of by the system, the system by, this, by a social safety net. United States, uh-uh. So you know, it's, you, you know, you get a few things here and you lose a few things. So I think it'd be great to have a combo. Um, I'm not sure Canada is it, but it could be. Um, <laughs> But, you know, you have the French uh, ideas of taking care of people in a society and the American ideas of independence. But I think it's complicated there as well. So, um, yeah, but yeah.
0: So it's creating a balance be- between the two. Sure, sure. Uh, between being taken care of, but at the same time, not having uh, being taken care of.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And to give somebody the the desire and the ability if they want it to really not have to depend on others for help. And I think Mm -hmm. what happens Mm -hmm. in France is that it's just assumed that you're going to need it. And uh, you know, and some people do need it um, and the people that need it should be able to get it. But I think we should all be presented with the option of having independence and also having the notion of being taken care of. And I would say that's true mm. for sighted people, too. I don't think it's just a blind thing. I, let me add that um, in, in all caps.
0: True. That that part of the uh, the uh, fight that's going on currently in terms of how much do we do for people and how mm. much don't we do for people, yeah. and depends on which side of the fence you're on. We're still... Fighting that battle and probably will for a long time. Yeah,
1: no, it's at the core. It's at the core of American what it means to be American, and I think that that's you know another way that blind people are just another example of forces that are already in existence for mm-hmm, everybody. Mm-hmm.
0: This has been fascinating, and unfortunately, I'm finding that our time is uh, very rapidly. Uh, come to an end but i'm hoping that i'd like to continue this conversation at as, as some point with you kathy if if you're uh, up for it
1: absolutely and, yeah but, sure
0: but i i really appreciate your being on and contributing your uh information to uh our audience and uh You know, those of you who are listening, who want to make some comments, uh, uh, certainly don't hesitate to contact the uh, uh, Audio Information Network of Colorado uh, through our email and give us your feedback and particularly some ideas of uh, people you'd like to hear. We certainly would welcome that. But for. Uh, for you, Kathy, thank you very, very much for a very interesting time in this program. And I will say to all of you in the audience, thank you for tuning in. This is Blindsight, your host Bill Lundgren, and until next time.